2: Paying for a traditional white wedding, tip your finances into the red. As wedding season begins, we look at ways that happy couples can trim the cost of their big day without skimping on romance. Did you have a bet on Leicester City? The football club's extraordinary victory prompts the Money Show to look at the growing popularity of online betting sites. And as I was going to St Ives, I met an FT journalist with an intriguing story about how local people in Cornwall are fighting back against property price inflation. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues and columnists. Does your big day have to leave you facing a big bill? Wedding's are big business, and to achieve the fairy tale that so many couples covet, you will need a very large budget. So how can you cut the costs without skimping on romance? FT Money Today launches a competition to find your best bridal money-saving tips, keep listening for full details, and in this weekend's issue, we hear from experts including Hamish Shepherd, founder of Bridebook, the free online wedding planning service, who joins me in the studio today. Hamish, welcome to the FT Money Show. Hello Claire. Well, your business, Bridebook, has been collecting vast amounts of data about weddings, which you hope will help other couples make the best financial decisions about their own big day. So firstly, let's start with the obvious question. How much does a traditional white wedding cost nowadays and who ends up fitting the bill?
1: Right, well, thank you for having us. So uh, yes, on Bridebook, we've had over 10,000 couples planning with us. We started in February of this year. And then looking across the data, you can now see the average wedding Costs between twenty-four and twenty-seven thousand pounds. A lot of that depends on where you're going to host your wedding as well. If you're going to have it in the capital, on average, it costs thirty-eight thousand pounds. But if you manage to get married in Wales, that's a cheaper part of the place in the country, uh, is around twenty-three thousand pounds. And then on splitting the bill, it's actually changed from the traditional way where parents would cover everything. We're now getting couples paying, actually around sixty-two percent of couples pay at least half of the wedding. Right a fifth of all couples actually pay the whole wedding themselves now if we look at a very small percent only six percent don't pay a penny at all so lucky them
2: so the bank of mum and dad (laughs) appears to be falling short of money so what's your top piece of advice for newly engaged couples who are looking to save money on their wedding i'd
1: say definitely starting a huge new stage in life is not to start life and debt so the most important one is to set a budget it's nice. an extremely emotional time when you've got engaged all the excitement i myself am getting married in three weeks time actually yeah. and the most important thing is to really look at all the costs and get a solid budget and, and break it down looking through the data we've run actually 36 uh, percent of couples end up going over their budget 32 percent didn't even have a budget and a very uh, four percent came under budget. So we've been working with a, a great team at Bridebook to hopefully do a tonne of the information, help people pull together the breakdown as quickly as possible.
2: Now, in order for couples to stick to their budget, there are many levers that can be pulled. Now, our reporter Adam Palin, who writes on the issue in FT Money this week, reveals how he himself saved nearly £9,000 by limiting the number of guests at his April wedding. Getting married in April was cheaper than June. And he only fed his guests once, which I rather liked. Now, I happen to know that you're getting married yourself in three weeks' time. So what are your top money-saving wedding hacks?
1: So I think Adam did a very good job. The main areas to look at, the biggest costs are going to be down to your venue, the time of year, and your number of guests. Right. If you're looking at Adam got married in April versus June often the venue cost can be 70% less. If you're looking at a midweek wedding, it'll again be similar. So you can choose to get married at Blenheim Palace. But if it's a Tuesday in February, it might be within your budget, whereas a Saturday in June is going to be a lot more expensive. Other tips I'd definitely say is being really uh, detailed on your guest list. That's going to be the biggest variety on your budget, or the biggest impact on your budget. If you imagine you're basically paying for everyone's round in, in the local pub from middle of the afternoon all the way till midnight. So choosing carefully, you know, who you're going to invite is extremely important. A big thing is to, to prioritize what's important to you. A lot of people might race off and say a marquee is going to be the dream. We'll do it at home and that's going to be easy. But uh, there's a huge amount of costs involved in that. If you think of, you need a generator and flooring and a lot more decoration. So from our data, it actually ends up being about 40% more expensive. But you'll probably only realise that often once you've put the marquee, you know, what I'd massively encourage is to look at all costs before you set off. But still, can have the most spectacular wedding within your budget. And
2: what about the smaller areas where costs can be trimmed? Things like hmm. wedding favors, those frankly useless <laughs> presents that get left on the table for people yeah. to take home, and, and invitations, and all of these incidentaries right. that can the incidences so in definitely
1: um, w- with invitations. Technology can really help there. Things like postal RSVPs. We actually used Bridebook, and people could just email us back. Other things like confetti, you can very easily make that yourself. A friend's actually making our wedding cake. Another item to consider, is very important, is your alcohol. So uh, something we've done for our own wedding is bought all our alcohol during the Christmas sales. That's when all supermarkets have their astronomical deals on to get you into the supermarket. So what would normally cost you yeah, you know, a huge amount in a hotel you can you can, you know, serve an amazing brand name champagne at a amazing new year deal price even if your wedding's in the summer.
2: Well, thanks there to Hamish Shepherd, founder of Bridebook. We wish you all the best for your big day, which I trust will come in on budget. <laughs> But if you think you can do better, listeners, we want to hear from you. Wherever you are in the world, what's your top money-saving tip for couples who are about to tie the knot? We've heard some great ones there from Hamish. If you think you can do better, email us, money at ft.com. And excitingly, we will be awarding prizes to the best answers which we'll print in a future edition. The full T's and C's will be on the FT Thrift blog on our website from tomorrow. You can read our cover feature, Cutting the Cost of a Perfect Wedding, in FT Money this weekend. Before that, Leicester City were handed victory in football's Premier League this week, a remarkable rise that saw the team defy quite incredible odds. At the start of the football season last August, some bookies were offering 5,000 to 1 on victory for the Foxes and could now collectively have to pay out over £50 million to those fans who gambled that Leicester would indeed win the title. All of this talk in football and gambling got me thinking about the rise of online betting services, which are particularly popular with football-mad young men, a subject that I've explored in my Serious Money column this week. I'm joined in the FT studio by Lindsay Cook, the FT's Money Mentor columnist, who also has strong views on this topic. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Good morning. In my column this week, I talk about the growing trend for online betting, which anyone who watches a football match cannot fail to to have noticed. But based on your own experiences,
4: is this a trend that we should be worrying about? I think it is. And I expect in the coming weeks, there'll be a lot more advertisements offering free bets, £10 bet with whoever on your favourite football team. And this is a way they can get your banking details and all sorts of things like that. And they lull people into a sense of security because they place a bet and they think, oh, I won't get the money. Then when they get £20 in their bank account, they think, oh, I might do it again because they're obviously very honourable. And unfortunately, online betting is too easy. It's 24-7. You can keep it hidden from anybody. It's if your life's a bit boring, you're a bit fed up after work. I've come across a lot of people through Money Fight Club and CAB who start out with their favourite team, their Leicester, their Arsenal or whatever, and then they're betting on all sorts of things. And It's very risky. So are there any groups who you think could be more susceptible than others? I think people who are borderline depressed, fed up with their jobs, young men as well, because they're lured in by the interest in football, is my view. And once they start betting, and it's not just will Leicester win the Premiership, it is Leicester's winning this match, who's going to get the next goal? who's going to get a yellow card. I used to work with somebody who was an absolute compulsive gambler and he told me proudly that, oh, his team was losing, so he had the opportunity in the second half of a match to get that money back because he placed three or four other bets. This was somebody who was very highly paid and bet a lot of money. Other people are less highly paid. They don't know how much they are actually betting because they do... Lots of little things. There's online poker as well. That can be lots of small bets. They play bingo online and I've come across people who have absolutely frittered away a whole redundancy, big redundancy cheque, Because they thought they were only paying for pennies and it just multiplies up and multiplies up and they're enjoying it and they do it. So it is very dangerous and it's there all the time and we heard that case last week of the young man who committed suicide because he had £40,000 worth of debt and, you know, that is the worst case scenario. A lot of people I see just don't know where the money goes and they are surprised when they find out how much they're paying out on betting.
2: Now, as I wrote in my column, my own stepson, who's 20 years old, is a person who regularly gambles, albeit small amounts of money, with friends when they're watching the football. It's become a social activity for them as a way of making the game more exciting to watch. Now, we've talked a lot about this as a family, as I mentioned in the column, but what's your advice to any concerned parents of those in their late teens and 20s who might be listening and thinking, are my children
4: up to this? Well, I think you've done the right thing. It is about educating. It's about pointing out who are the winners overall in the gambling industry. Yes, there's a big fuss about £50 being paid out for Leicester. We're not learning how much Crystal Palace and Sunderland fans put on and have lost and how many people are likely to come to it and also who goes in and bets on other things. I've got sons. One of them enjoys poker. He takes part in tournaments. He's worked it out. He goes to a tournament. It costs him £40, which is a lot of money. But he prefers that than going to the same casino and being in a cash game, being down. Oh, I'll put a bit more in. I'll put... He's under control. He says it's no more than going out for supper. And I think that's a good way of looking at it.
2: Well, thanks very much for joining us. That was Lindsay Cook, co-founder of consumer finance website Money Fight Club and you can read my column, Leicester City Beat the Odds But Most People Don't, now on ft.com money. As I was going to St Ives, I met a man with seven wives. But how on earth, I asked, could he afford such a big property? I refer, of course, to the latest battle over soaring property prices in Cornwall, where residents in the picturesque seaside town of St Ives are about to vote on measures designed to give local people a better chance of buying a home against wealthy outsiders. I'm joined by FT reporter Josh Noble, who's been down to Cornwall to cover the story. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So people around the world are actually watching the outcome of this vote in St Ives this week, a tiny Cornish town which is all of a sudden on the international property news agenda. What's at stake?
3: Well, as with much of the country, the people of St. Ives, there's about 11,000 of them, will be going to the polls to pick councillors and uh, other local officials. But what we're talking about here is what's called the Neighbourhood Plan, which is about as racy as it sounds. It's 108 pages long of various planning laws, uh, identifies sites for development, and all this kind of stuff. But contained within it is a clause called H2, which is what everyone's got excited about. And if the people of St Ives vote in this entire neighbourhood plan, H2 will come in and what that will do is it will stop property developers from selling new build homes to non-residents. Basically if you want to buy a new build house you have to live and vote in St Ives if this comes in.
2: Now tell us a bit about the riddle of property prices in St Ives.
3: St Ives is tiny and had a real squeeze on property because all of these people who went on holiday loved it and want to own a bit of it. And so they've been buying up these old sort of stone fishermen's cottages in central St. Ives, very picturesque, not hugely practical. But what that's done is it's pushed property prices up across the town. I mean, the latest figures that we have show that the average house price is around 18 times local earnings. Wow! Just for comparison, in England, that figure is nine. So we're talking about real gulf here between what property prices what properties they're selling for and what local people can afford. And there are a mixture of factors. I mean, tourism is the main thing, which you know people want to buy a house either to let out in the summer for investment purposes, to visit through the year uh, because they want a second home. And it's just sort of given that general uplift in property price that we've seen across the country, a real sort of steroid boost.
2: And obviously... The people who are from St Ives, who are working in its tourist industry, are now finding that they, it's unsustainable for them to live there. But when you travelled down to St Ives last week, you found pockets of support for this policy. However, many locals think that the policy could backfire. Why is that?
3: There are two concerns, really. One is from the, those who work in the tourism industry, people who run restaurants and mm. coffee shops and things like that, who just think, why on earth would you do anything to stop second homeowners who typically spend a lot of money when they come down, they're typically wealthier, they they support the local economy. So why would you do anything to undercut basically the mainstay of St Ives? So that's their concern, is that if you do anything to scare off second homeowners or tourists, then it's really self-defeating. The other concern is from, as you'd expect, property developers who say... If you bring in this clause, if we're no longer allowed to build and design stuff for second homeowners, then we simply won't build and design anything. We'll just sit on our land and we'll go two or three miles further out of the parish over the border where there isn't this rule and we'll build all of our stuff there. And then they say, you know, the local council and the others who've been pushing this plan will come back saying, oh God, we need houses. Why have you stopped building? And And they'll say, it's your fault. Prices
2: could could go up because you know properties will become even more scarce because the
3: supply. Well, t- well exactly. I mean economists say that the ultimate way to fix this problem is just to build more houses because there is a structural shortage whether you're talking about St Ives or Cornwall or basically anywhere in the country. So developers can sort of beat that drum and say look economists say you need more houses and you're doing something that puts us off building. So it's not going to work.
2: Well thanks very much there. That was Josh Noble. You can read his full report on ft.com/money. We'll have the latest on that vote and its ramifications in FT Money this weekend. We'd love to know what you think about how you can cut the costs of your wedding, or what you think about the row that's going on in Cornwall. You can get in touch with us via email, our address, money at ft.com, or tweet us at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website, ft.com money. There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this weekend's edition. Veteran investor John Lee has added a new share to his famous small cap portfolio and we look at the rising cost of medical insurance. Plus, we have the latest share tips and director's deals from The Investor's Chronicle. The Money Show was produced in London by Alex Wisniska and edited by Feline Reyes in Manila. We will be back next week at our new regular UK publication time of 6am on Thursday mornings, ready for your commute into work. Till then, it's goodbye from us and our studio guests. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com podcasts.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin?